Barry. Please be seated. Just bear with me as I get my technology organised. It's a, a real privilege to be with you this morning. It's a privilege to be in different churches around our wonderful nation from time to time. And uh, I never want to take for granted the worship of God's people on a Sunday morning. I came in here and uh, your team was rehearsing and I just find myself uh, just becoming overwhelmed with um, the presence of God and the fact that people's hearts on a Sunday morning are to worship the Lord and it's a beautiful and precious thing and I hope we never take it for granted. You've got a great leadership and a great uh, team here and uh, a sanctuary uh, for you and uh, as I say, let's, let's not get into a place where we take it for granted. Uh, great to be worshipping with you. Just bear with me. Sorry, my, <coughs> my technology is... Um, I've just lost my little file but I will find it. Please, um, there it is. <laughs> it's right there. Um, I've been asked to speak this morning on a topic which is a little bit controversial. Um, who thinks politics is controversial? Who thinks religion is controversial? What are the two things that you should never talk about at a dinner party? <laughs> politics and religion. Well, they happen to be my two favourite subjects in life. <laughs> And whenever I go to a dinner party, I can't help talking about politics and religion. And it's got me in a lot of trouble over, over the years, believe you me. Uh, it is controversial and uh, it's very controversial to even be talking about it at church on Sunday because we're just supposed to do spiritual things on Sunday, aren't we? Avoid all the controversy and just point people to Jesus. Well, I just want to say right at the start that um, Paul says that uh, we see through a glass dimly. Right, so what I say today, these are some of my thoughts, um, things that uh, I think are important, but I uh, just put that caveat, I see through a glass dimly. So you be like the Bereans, search the scriptures and work out whether what I'm saying is right or not, okay? And please don't be too offended if I say things that are offensive. Um, so the topic today was, should Christians be involved in politics? But as I thought about this topic, and I mean, this is no disrespect to Pastor Larry or the team here, but I wonder whether the real question is, why aren't Christians involved in politics? There, I'm being controversial already. <laughs> Let's go to the Bible where I can hopefully be on safer ground. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 16. Now, this is the last chapter of uh, the second book of Chronicles, and if you know the history of Israel, you know, they come out of Egypt into the promised land. They have the period of the judges. They're, you know, trying to drive out all the, the bad people and take possession. Then they have the kings and King David gets set up and then Solomon, it seems like this glorious thing. And then it all just goes pear-shaped and then this is up and down trajectory for hundreds of years uh, as we go through Kings and Chronicles. Who's read those those books of the Bible and, and you wonder, God, can't they just get it right? Why do they have bad kings and good kings? And anyway, it gets to the end of two Chronicles and uh, last chapter. And it says in verse 16, the Lord, the God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. 
That's a scary place to be, isn't it? Where God's mercy has come to you over and over again with warning after warning after warning, and you've still rebelled, your heart is still hard, and you've scoffed at what God's had to say to you, and then you're at the place where there is no remedy. Verse 17, Therefore he, God, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. So in the safe places where they thought they'd be safe, the young men are being killed and they had no compassion on the young man or the virgin, the young women. I mean, do you think this is just a horrible, horrible, horrific situation? The enemies come in, the places that you thought were safe, your children are being slaughtered. It's just awful. Old man and aged, he gave them all into the hand of the Chaldeans. And that was the end of Israel, the end of Judah for 70 years as they were led off into captivity in Babylon. Should we be involved in politics? What have we been singing about today? Kingship? Dominion? I mean, your songs, you've answered your question in your worship today. The Bible is a political book. Let's have a look at um, some of these things. Joseph was a prime minister in the Egyptian empire. He held political office, did he not? (laughs) Uh, Moses handed down a legal system, which has been the basis of the world's best governments over the past 3,000 years. Where would our legal system be today? That of the UK, America, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, particularly those Anglosphere countries and then other countries uh, that have adopted similar systems, where would they be without the Ten Commandments? The ethics that have come from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that is the basis of the Western legal system. I don't know about you, but uh, I get in Ubers from time to time. And generally the person driving the Uber is someone from India or Pakistan. And uh, I always ask them, when uh, the Indian or Pakistani cricket team is here, who do you support? And uh, they sort of sheepishly say, well, India or Pakistan. <laughs> but then I ask them, why have you come to Australia? Oh, oh, too much corruption in our country, too much corruption. And I think about this, and, and this, is not, um, this is not a racial uh, comment because in Christ we're all one. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, Male nor female, we're all one in Christ. That is the Christian vision. And I love the fact that here today, I'm in a congregation where I think I'm outnumbered by people who have come from other parts of the world. And that is a vision of heaven uh, that God has brought to our nation because we're all from tribes and nations around the throne. So this is not a racial comment, but it's just a comment about, uh, about the laws of God and what works. And we've been the beneficiaries in countries like Australia, uh, in, the, in the West, that have adopted... Uh, the laws of Moses into the legal system because we don't tolerate corruption now. (laughs) We're moving away from that very, very quickly uh, as we're abandoning uh, biblical ethics. But Moses handed down a legal system that has been the basis of good government uh, over the millennia and uh, we're walking away from it. That is a political thing that's come from the Bible. Uh, I mentioned uh, Judges, the Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, if you, I've just finished reading the books, book of Ezra. Uh, he, he's getting letters from governors and from kings. Um, it's very, very political, the interactions that are going on there. Isaiah and Jeremiah spoke to kings and rulers. Daniel was a senior government official in the Babylonian empire. That was the superpower of the day. 
Don't tell me that God's not interested in politics. He puts his people right at the heart of the superpower empires in the government and the administration. Imagine the compromises and the ethical minefield that Daniel would have had to walk through in that pagan kingdom, but he kept himself holy as we know. Let's go to the New Testament. This is not just an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, John the Baptist said some controversial things to a political ruler. What did he say? He said, your definition of marriage is not God's definition of marriage. It is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. What happened to John the Baptist because of that controversial statement? He lost his head. He was speaking truth to political power. Jesus himself found himself in front of the political ruler of the day, Pilate, and he's having a discourse about the nature of truth itself and about what, where real authority comes from. Yes, I'm Lord. It is right. I am the King of the Jews. Jesus put himself up as a political uh, person right there with Pilate. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul himself. This is the real controversial aspect. Paul comes along saying that Jesus has risen from the dead, which everyone thinks is nonsense. Even half the Jews, there's a whole sect of the Jews called the Sadducees who don't believe there is a resurrection. The Romans and the Greeks of the day, they don't, they're the intellectuals. They don't believe, of course, people don't come back from the dead. Paul says, I'm on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And what's more, this Jesus who rose from the dead is Lord and King. And he appropriates the Roman terminology for Caesar being the son of God and being Lord and says, Caesar is not Lord. Your, your ruler of this all-powerful global empire is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. That is a very controversial and confronting political statement that the Apostle Paul was made. That is at the heart of Paul's claims in the gospel. Yes, he tells us the way to personal salvation, but that's just the beginning of it. And or I'm not going to get ahead of my health, but I'm going to get ahead of myself here. But let's just put to bed this idea that the gospel, that the Bible, that Christianity is not political. It is a political religion. It's getting scary now, isn't it? <laughs> okay. So first point, the Bible is political. It's all about politics. If you took the politics out of the Bible, you won't have much left. Do you agree? Have I made that point? <laughs> Who's disagreeing? Who's too scared to say? <laughs> it's quite very quiet out there. <laughs> point number two, getting involved in politics is an act of love for your neighbour. One of my favourite theologians is a man by the name of John Stott. Has anyone heard of John Stott? Yeah. A few people. He was a, he's dead now. He only died a few years ago. Uh, he was friends with Billy Graham. John Stott was an Englishman. He was an Anglican. He wrote uh, an amazing book about 30 years ago called Issues Facing Christians Today. All the issues he identified 30 years ago are still issues facing Christians today. Uh, and, it, and it's really a manifesto of why we should get involved in politics. And uh, the first chapter of that book is called Involvement, Is It Our Concern? And he says this, he says, it's always good to feed the hungry. I don't think anyone doubts that proposition, do we? Christians have always done that. That's what I love about Christianity. But then he says, it is better, if possible, to eradicate the causes of hunger. So if we truly love our neighbours and want to serve them, our service may oblige us to take or solicit political action on their behalf. What's he saying here? He's saying, yes, we should go and feed the poor and clothe the naked, but 
If there's political structures in the way of those people getting the help that they need, we should get involved in politics. I want to submit today that generally, I don't think there's an argument about whether we should help the poor uh, or feed the hungry or clothe the naked. I think we all agree with that. Even, even people who are not Christians don't have a problem with that proposition. But where we do have a problem is on some other areas of ethics which are just as important and which affect the vulnerable people. Now, I mentioned earlier the children of Israel went into captivity because of their unfaithfulness, because of idol worship, wasn't it? What were, they, what were the gods that they were worshipping? The Baals, the Ashtoreth, Moloch. Does anyone know anything about these gods? They weren't just little carved images that, that you sort of, you know, benignly bowed down to. Baal worship involved, it, it was a sex cult, basically. It was a, it was a, it was a sex cult temple prostitutes. It was a fertility cult. They thought that by performing lured uh, sexual acts that they could um, you know, cause the rain to come and the seasons to go well for them. That, that was essentially Baal worship in a nutshell. Uh, Moloch and, and Ashtoreth, that involved child sacrifice. And if, if you read through uh, Kings and Chronicles, the reason why God was so unhappy with the children of Israel and Judah was that they kept reverting to these uh, gods that involved uh, these rituals that involved child sacrifice and, and all of these, it was horrific. It was horrendous. And that's why they ended up going into captivity. That's why eventually there was no remedy because they didn't listen to the prophets who said, repent, change your ways. What have we got in our society today um, that's not much different? We've had the 1960s. You know, We've been living um, basically a, a sex cult for the last 50 years. Anything goes, so the song says, and of course it does. The, the, the idea that we should um, talk about uh, confines for uh, sexual flourishing within marriage, uh, as, as the Christian Bible teaches us, that, that's seen as anathema now. You're seen as a weirdo if you say that um, we should uh, restrict uh, sex to married couples. Male and female. I mean, that, that's a very narrow view. That's a controversial view today. People will laugh at you if you say that that's what it's for. But of course, that's, what, that's the vision of, of human flourishing uh, for, for relationships, for family that we see in the Bible. Uh, but our world is more attuned to the Baal aspect of how we should conduct ourselves in that area. And of course, children suffer. Um, you've only got to look at the sociology and the, and the social science to see uh, what's happened as a result of children being born out of wedlock and missing out on their mother or father and all of this sort of thing. Now we've got the whole LGBT uh, issue, which, which is a celebration of licentiousness and anything goes sexuality. You've only got to look at the, the gay Mardi Gras. What is that celebrating? It's celebrating everything that mitigates against mum, dad and the kids and that which is precious to civilization that which is precious to the best interests of a child. And yet we celebrate something that's anathema to that. And here in Victoria, you've built at taxpayers' expense at St Kilda, I went and had a look at it the other day, a temple to this sex cult, essentially, to this, this different vision of human flourishing, which is way outside the vision that uh, God has created for us as human creatures to flourish in. And, and we see the effects of this all around us. Um, it's not bearing good fruit. Now, I'm being very controversial here, I know. But, um, and, and then, you know, you think, well, okay, we're not into child sacrifice. Well, are we? Um, you know, I, I grieve. Um, you know, the, the thing that got me into politics uh, as a, as a young, younger uh, person, as a teenager, 
in the 1980s when I heard about the issue of abortion and, and how this has been uh, legalised. Now, again, this is a tough issue and I know that um, many, you know, uh, many people suffer as a result of this. Uh, this has been a difficult thing for many women in our society. I also know from feminists that I've um, known and worked with over the years that women's grief after abortion is a real, real thing. Uh, it is not something that is without consequence and tens of millions of unborn babies have been killed in the womb uh, because we as a society uh, don't support women who find themselves with unsupported pregnancies. And uh, we've created this situation where now here in the state of Victoria, you were the first in our country under Dan Andrews as the health minister to legalise abortion to birth. Just struck it out of the criminal code. Every other state in the nation except WA has now followed suit since 2008 when Dan Andrews did that. Abortion right up to birth. Now, most of our fellow citizens, are, they will tolerate abortion up to a certain level. Um, most people uh, are very squeamish about it uh, at, at the later term, but uh, so extreme are our politicians that they have to legalise it all the way up to birth. Why do they have to do that? Because they can't logically draw a line. They can't say why at 15 weeks a baby should be saved and why at you know 14 weeks and <laughs> uh, 29 days it shouldn't or, or whatever, um, 14 weeks and... They can't draw a line. It's extreme. But this is where we are, um, where we are sacrificing a whole generation of children. And um, it's got terrible consequences uh, for our society. Are we any better than the people of Israel? Now, the reason I'm labouring all this, because these have all been political decisions. Political decisions. Now, if we love our neighbour, should it not be that we take political action? What's the, the other... There's many issues that I could touch on, but the other one that is quite egregious that has crept up in the last six or seven years is the whole transgender issue. Now, I recognise that there are people who struggle with um, their, their gender identity, all this sort of thing. Um, but we've got a situation now where children are being indoctrinated into this at school. Um, in Victoria, on your education department website, it says that if a teacher finds a child who's wanting to transition their gender and the parents don't agree, the teacher should hide that information from the parents. I've spoken to a grandmother whose grandchild has been through this very process. Now, a teacher in a school should hide nothing from a parent, let alone the idea that the child might be wanting to change their gender at school. This is serious stuff. You've only got to Google top surgery and you'll see images of, of young women who have had radical surgery done to their bodies so that they can present uh, as, as men, uh, as boys. There are minors that are going through this surgery uh, right at this moment. It's not, it's not in huge numbers, but it is in increasing numbers and it's documented, it is happening. You've got Dr. Michelle Telfer here at the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne, who is on the public record as saying that she wants more public money so that they can perform uh, this sort of, she calls it reconstructive surgery, but that's a euphemism for double mastectomies on minors. She wants to do this on children. She's on the public record. You can read this. It's all on our uh, Family First website. I've blogged this. I've linked to the actual sources. This is extreme stuff. The media don't report it the way that they should. And of course, the public don't know. Uh, but the more the public find out, the more they're with us on these sort of things. The Baal worship involved cutting themselves. It involved these extreme acts, you know, Elijah on Mount Carmel. What are we doing today? We've got this, it, this paganism, you know, didn't just go away with the old times. It's still with us today. These are pagan things. And so what we're seeing now is, um, is, is 
is all of this stuff as a result of political decisions. So what do we do as, let's, let's forget about the fact that we're Christians. What do we do as citizens in a society? We live in a society where we have a political uh, system that allows us to participate as free citizens. Uh, I would submit to you that all of these are issues that uh, uh, as a result of politics, we should get involved and we should have a say about them. And we should argue the case in the public square about whether or not this is good and healthy for citizens, whether or not children should be led down this path, whether or not we should provide a, a better option to women with unsupported pregnancies than the dismembering of their babies in their womb and the consequences that come for after that. We know that many women are coerced into having abortions. Look at what happened in the Hawthorne Football Club just a few weeks ago where the club allegedly put pressure on a young woman to have her baby uh, aborted. And uh, there's many other examples in the NRL in Sydney as well. This is very, very real. So what should our response be? Well, number three is getting involved in politics, I believe, is a gospel imperative. Um, Jesus didn't just come to save you from your sins and take you to heaven. Uh, <laughs> What, what does the Lord's Prayer say when Jesus teaches his disciples? How should we pray? Pray then in this way. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on heaven as it is in heaven. No. Thy kingdom come on earth. Where do we live? Earth. So what is God wanting? He's not wanting us to get out of earth, to get, escape this and go to heaven. Now, we will do that if we know the Lord Jesus. Um, and that is a great hope. But where there's hell on earth, and I think I've described some things this morning, and I'm sorry if it's a bit confronting, but these are the results of political decisions that are creating hell on earth, creating hell on earth. Uh, what does Jesus want? What does he want us to pray for? What does he want us to see happen? Where there's hell on earth, where to see heaven come on earth? We're not to sit here and think, oh, it's just got to get worse and worse. And, you know, no, that's not Jesus' vision. His vision is to see heaven come to this earth. And guess what? <laughs> How does he bring heaven to earth? Through you and I. <laughs> and, and, and part of that may well be by getting involved in the political realm, by using our voices to speak up in a participatory democracy where we have the right of free speech, where we're not cowed into silence. We're saying, no, no, there are strong arguments here as to why these things uh, shouldn't be. And that's a way we can bring heaven uh, onto earth. Number four, there's a high price for speaking. Following Jesus into politics is costly. Um, someone that I've studied a little bit over the recent years is a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Has anyone heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Raise your hands if you heard a few people. Everyone should know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In the 1930s uh, in Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a young uh, theologian, only in his early 30s, but a very smart guy who'd studied the scriptures, and he could see what was happening in Nazi Germany with the rise of Adolf Hitler. He was a Lutheran, a proud German Lutheran theologian. And in about 1932 or 1933, Hitler brought in uh, a law. It was called the Aryan Clause. And that clause said that any Jews were not to be permitted to hold leadership roles in German societies. Now, that's a racist law right there. Bonhoeffer himself, Bonhoeffer straight away recognised that contravenes the laws of God. That political decision by the National Socialists to exclude Jews from leadership in Germany in the early 1930s, this is, this is before anyone had even dreamed up gas chambers or the Holocaust or anything like that. 
He recognised this was wrong and he started to speak out about it. Guess who he is most unpopular with? His own church. And the reason being is there were a number of Jewish converts to Lutheranism. And uh, that law meant that a Jewish convert to Lutheranism could not be a pastor in the Lutheran church. Bonhoeffer said to his church, this is wrong. This is wrong. In 1932-33, there were 18,000 Lutheran pastors in Germany. 18,000. Now, Bonhoeffer started to say, we cannot, we cannot go with this. Uh, on the other hand, the, the National Socialists were putting pressure on the church to affiliate with the, the National Socialist Party. So 3,000 pastors went with Bonhoeffer in what was called the Confessing Church. 3,000 pastors went with Hitler in what was called the Reichkirk. 12,000 pastors sat on the fence and uh, the rest is, hit, is history. Um, Eric Metaxas, who's written uh, the seminal biography on uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, says this, the price of speaking rises the longer that we are silent. Now, there was a lot of silence from those 12,000 pastors uh, in Germany. Who knows if, if they had spoken. After World War II, um, the evangelical church in Germany got together in Stuttgart just after the war, and they issued a declaration called the Stuttgart Declaration. And they said this, they said, if we had made a bolder confession, perhaps even the Holocaust could have been prevented. Now, that's a big claim from a very repentant, chastened church who realised that they should have been speaking up when they could have. Metaxas says that no one in the early 1930s Germany thought that National Socialism would go that far. No one thought it would lead to World War II. No one thought it would lead to a Holocaust. The Holocaust only sort of, it just morphed along. The Nazis didn't even start off thinking that. Uh, it, if you read, um, I've just finished reading a biography of Adolf Hitler. It, it was well into the war years that, that uh, Himmler and these guys dreamed up the, the final solution. They didn't start that way. But what does happen is when good people fail to speak, when they can, the price of speaking rises uh, incredibly. And just as a footnote, um, I said under this point that the price of speaking is very high. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged uh, just two weeks before World War II ended. He had got involved in a conspiracy to um, assassinate Hitler. This was a guy who was a pacifist, <laughs> uh, but uh, he felt that this evil meant that he had to get involved. He paid a very, very high price. Fifth point, appeasement and quietism is not the answer. There's a lot of Christians, you know, who, um, who think, let's not get involved in politics. This is too controversial. Just preach the gospel. Just stick to spiritual things. And uh, there are some who say that things have got so bad, so bad that we just, let's just knuckle down in our churches. This is a safe place here on a Sunday morning. Um, let's be like the Benedictine monks who after the fall of Rome, uh, built these walls around them and had gardens and kept the scriptures and prayed and basically hunkered down for a few hundred years until things got better again. Now, I, I think there's some merit in that, but I don't think that is the ultimate solution. There, there's pressure on Christians to do that. A, a fellow who I really respect by the name of Rod Dreyer, an American Christian conservative, wrote a book called The Benedictine Option. And a lot of Christians are using that now as an excuse. Let's not get involved in this controversial stuff. Let's just hunker down and let's hope that, you know, let's build an ark and <laughs> wait till the flood waters recede. So you, you can make a, a case for it. Um, Dreyer has written another book since The Benedict Option and it's called Live Not By Lies. I think it's a better book. 
And uh, it's, taken from, it's taken from the um, famous quote of Vaclav Havel, who was a Czech, Czechoslovakian resistance leader in the 1970s. And um, Vaclav Havel uh, said that we mustn't live by the lie. He keeps speaking truth. Keep speaking truth, don't submit to the lies. And the challenge for us today in the regimes under which we're living, promulgated by our culture, by our politics, the, the regime which says it's okay for babies to be, to be killed through abortion right up to birth, that there's no such thing as male or female biology and children should be taught that their gender is fluid. You know, all of these things are lies. We must resist those lies and not live by the lies. Vaclav Havel said to his people in Czechoslovakia, don't submit to the lies of the Communist Party. Don't submit to the lies of our cultural Marxists today is what I'm saying to you. Um, we, must not, um, we must not give in to it. Um, I'm gonna skip ahead because time is getting away. Getting involved in politics, I believe means that we have hope for the future. What do I mean by that? Well, Psalm 110 says something um, very amazing. It says, it's, it's a Psalm of David. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, this is verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And it goes on and um, it picks up some of the words that we've been singing today uh, about Jesus ruling in the midst of, of your enemies, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord said to my Lord. So that's God saying to David's Lord, which is Jesus. So this is David knowing that Jesus is coming, knowing that he has been given this incredible promise that his kingdom, that the Davidic line will go on forever. That was the promise that God made through Samuel to, to David. So David is prophesying this psalm. The Lord God said to my Lord Jesus, he didn't know that his name was gonna be Jesus, but David knew that there was a true king in his lineage coming down the track that would be the saviour. Um, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now, when the Bible says one thing, we should take notice. When the Bible says one thing five times, what should we do? Take real notice. So that scripture is repeated word for word in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. So Psalm 110, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. Those words are repeated. What is God trying to say? Now, I'm gonna get really controversial here. <laughs> I don't know when the second coming of Jesus will be. Um, I think we know from scripture that no one knows the time nor the hour. But I also don't believe that the gospel is about us getting snatched out of the mess and going to heaven in the clouds. What did Paul say? He said, my hope is the resurrection from the dead. Now, yes, I believe there's life after life after death. So yes, when we die, I do believe we'll be with the Lord, just like the thief on the cross was with the Lord. But our eternal destiny is not as disembodied spirits floating around on a cloud. Do you know that? That is not your eternal destiny. Your eternal destiny is as resurrected beings, just like Jesus was. That is your, Jesus rose from the dead. This is our hope as Christians. We don't talk about it enough. Bear with me, this involves politics. So Jesus rose from the dead. He had a body, he could eat. He made fish on the beach and, and ate. Thomas could touch his wounds. He could 
walk through walls because he turned up in a room that, where the doors were locked because they were all scared. So there's something supernatural about this body, but it was still physical and it was eternal. And guess what? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There is a man sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, and his name is Jesus. He has a body that can be touched. There's a physical man at the right hand of the Father. Your destiny is to be like him. The Scriptures tell us that he was the first of many to rise from the dead. That is your hope. That is our hope. That's where, that is where we... And then we fast forward to Revelation 21 and what do we see? A renewed earth and a renewed heavens. Uh, our eternal destiny is as resurrected beings on this renewed earth and this renewed heavens. It's all merging into one. That's, that's the culmination of history. Read it. Revelation 21. That's the hopeful, that's the hope that we have. So Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. It says five times in Scripture. How long is he going to sit there for? Well, well, no, not forever. He's going to sit there until, until, until what happens? His enemy becomes a footstool for his feet. What has Jesus asked his church to do? <laughs> we, we, our job is to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven, where there's hell on earth. We are to, we, God's church is the agent of bringing about God's purposes on earth. Go and disciple nations. That doesn't just mean go and lead people in the sinner's prayer so that they can go to heaven as soon as they die. That is part of it, absolutely. Every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus. Everyone needs to start by knowing Jesus and loving him and having that salvation, that transformational personal experience. I'm not downplaying that at all. I'm just saying that's the start. We have made the gospel. We've cut the gospel in half. We, we just leave it there. There's a job to do in this world to see nations discipled, nations Nations have political structures, they have cultures, they have music, they have arts, they have a whole bunch of things. And that's why as, crea as creative, created beings, we're to go and contribute to all that and to bring heaven and hope into all these situations, to, to change them. Jesus came to set things to rights on this earth where things were wrong. Guess what? Things are still wrong in many ways. Our job as Christians is to set them to right. And uh, Jesus is there. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the job to do. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's going to stay there until the church has done its job. And I don't know how long that will be, but I, it might be a few more hundred years. I don't know. But uh, I believe he's got, I don't believe that it's just going to get worse and worse and he plucks us out of the mess. Uh, but you can challenge me on that. And I know that's controversial. But our hope is the resurrection from the dead. Jesus was the first. When he rose from the dead, he, he inaugurated something. He unleashed something in the world. We've been singing about it today. Do you believe that he's the king of kings, that he's ruling and reigning? That that's what the resurrection of the dead inaugurated now. Now, we live in the now and not yet. Of course, it's not all fully realised. And the other thing I want to really say is, in case anyone thinks that um, I'm trying to incite some revolution here today, the way that the Jesus people go about engaging politics and seeing the transformation of our world is not the way that the world goes about it. We don't operate in the spirit of Machiavelli, which is just ruthless politics, whatever it takes. And I haven't got time to unpack all that this morning. We serve a king who exercised power in a very unconventional way. It's the upside down kingdom. He went to a cross. He gave his life. He sacrificed himself. That's the model that we follow. We follow a king who didn't go riding 
on a white horse with a sword into Jerusalem. He rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. He's the servant king. That's our example. And when people try and uh, criticise people like me, oh, you just want political power, you're just trying to get Christians to you know, engage in power and, and just use it ruthlessly like everyone else. No, I'm not. I'm saying, yes, let's get involved. Let's speak up. Let's be bold like a Bonhoeffer. Let's be bold like the prophets, like John the Baptist, who called out uh, a king who wanted to redefine marriage. Not enough Christians called out our political leaders as they tried to redefine marriage in 2017, but that's another story. Yes, we should be bold. Yes, we should speak, but we do it in a spirit of humility in the way that Christ did it. We're not here to wield power in the way that the world sees that as power. And um, there's a lot more I could unpack in, in there. I just want to finish with one thing, uh, just one thing which I hope might encourage you. Next Monday, Monday week, not tomorrow, but a week's time, uh, I'll be in Brisbane. And the reason I'll be in Brisbane is because I um, have been compelled uh, to go on trial in the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal because two years ago I wrote a blog about drag queen story time. And uh, I did some research on some drag queens who were reading to little children in a Brisbane City Council library. I was living in Brisbane at the time. And uh, I said that these drag queens were dangerous role models for children. One was crowdfunding to have her breasts removed so that she could present as a man. The other was someone who on his Facebook pages was um, promoting his award through the adult entertainment industry, an X award. He was promoting the pornography industry. And his uh, stage name, Diamond Goodrim, uh, was a reference to uh, an unspeakable homosexual act. And yet these two drag queens, one who was a woman presenting as a man to children, the other uh, who was uh, a flagrant um, advocate for uh, the pornography industry. So I, I wrote this up because all of this information was easily discoverable by anyone with a device. And uh, I said, this shouldn't be happening. Why have we got drag queens reading to children? This is all part of a global uh, way to try and indoctrinate children into LGBTIQA plus um, stuff. And that's why it must be resisted because it's dangerous for children. Uh, a few months later, I received um, a letter from the Queensland Human Rights Commission compelling me to go to compulsory mediation, saying that I was in breach of the Anti-Discrimination Act or potentially in breach of the Anti-Discrimination Act for alleged vilification. We had mediation. Um, I was polite to the drag queens, but I said, look, I'm not gonna back down. I'm not gonna take my blog down. Uh, I'm not gonna say sorry for this. Uh, it's nothing against you guys personally. I just have the view that what you're promoting to little children is dangerous and it's wrong. They weren't satisfied with that. They escalated it to QCAT. I uh, received a demand to pay them $20,000 and to apologise publicly and to remove my blogs from my website. Uh, again, I politely declined. As a result, uh, I'm on trial uh, in, in just over a week's time. So I fly out of here on Sunday after the election, go to Brisbane where I'm on trial for three days there. Um, politics, folks, um, I, I'm on trial because of a political decision made by some very naive politicians who put in place so-called anti-vilification laws, which all they do is protect people who are wanting to um, shut down debate, essentially, and, and stop discussion on things that really matter for children. Um, and it's, it's dangerous. In my readings this week, I was reading in Philippians 1. Again, this is Paul. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, 
Paul's writing from a jail in Philippi, or sorry, a jail in Rome to the Philippians. He spent a lot of time, he wrote, did his best writing in jail. And uh, the people who were right, he was writing to, they knew that he was in jail and they knew that life was tough for him. But he said, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. My hope is that my little, now I hope I don't end up in jail, but <laughs> my little trial in a week's time um, for simply saying what I think is obvious to every mainstream Australian, that people who promote sexual licentiousness, people who want to promote um, bodily, radical body, bodily alteration of children, uh, that that is dangerous and it shouldn't be promoted. And my hope is that this little example will help people be emboldened just in the same way that Paul's followers were emboldened by his imprisonment. Paul was in jail because he said that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. The gospel, folks, is political. I'm on trial because I believe that little children are precious to Jesus and politicians have made the wrong decision in creating laws that stop us from defending who are most precious in God's sight. My hope and prayer is that my little thing uh, will help embolden others to speak and that we'll begin to see the tide of darkness turned around and we'll begin to see more of heaven coming to Australia as a result of Christians getting involved in politics. God bless you.